Romans chapter 2. <clears throat> Lord willing, time willing, we're going to hopefully do uh, from verse 12 um, over to uh, verse 20, verse 19 over there in Romans chapter 3. But before we get started, um, I want to do this real quick. Mason, if you want to come on up, I'm going to embarrass uh, Mason Coleman here for a second. Uh, some of you may know Mason. Uh, Mason, actually, if you stay down there, I'll be taller than you. That would actually be nice. Um, Mason's actually taken off this afternoon, right? Yep. Basic training for the Marine Corps. So we just wanted to uh, pray over him. We just wanted to pray over him for uh, safety, for God's hand to be upon him here. And uh, we're always appreciative of the people that serve, and uh, we're very thankful for that. So can we just go ahead and pray for you? Lord, we just want to pray for Mason as he just gets ready to take off here. We obviously pray for your hand of safety and perfect, uh, protection to be upon him. Go before him in all ways, as we know these next uh, few weeks will be very tough on him mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Lord, I pray that you be his strength and his rock during this time. Help him to keep himself focused on you. Be a light and a witness for you in so many ways. Lord, you just be thankful that we're with him, and Lord, you be with him in all ways, and we praise you and thank you for what you've done in your name. Amen. We'll be praying for you, Mason. God bless. All right, we're going to be in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and before we get started, let's do the smart thing and just have a small word of prayer here. Uh, Heavenly Father, as always, you wrote it. Lord, you teach it. We just want to listen. Let your spirit lead and guide and direct, and we pray, Lord, that your spirit would be the one doing the teaching, and we would be the one doing the listening. In your name, amen. Now, if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks here in our study with Romans, Romans chapter 1, the key component of Romans 1, it's all about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what matters more than anything. It's just the gospel. Is somebody saved or not saved? That's what matters. Well, that's the good news. Well, what happens here in Romans chapter 1 Paul then uses this argument, and it's a very logical argument. And by me saying logical, don't take away the fact that it's not spirit-led. It's still led by the spirit, but a very logical argument of where God created everything. And that's his greatest witnessing tool that he gave us, is his creation. When you look out the window, you see creation. You have to know that there's something bigger than us out there. So that's the greatest witnessing tool he's given us for the gospel. Well, what happened, if you look in Romans 1, the creation became perverted, if you will, and sin came into the world. And so what happened is, as people, we started worshiping the creation and not the creator. And so, therefore, we were not in God's will and God's plan for our lives because we were in sin. And so the true gospel message is the sin has to be dealt with. A lot of times when the gospel is presented, we present the one side of the gospel, which is just totally true. Come to Jesus Christ, and he loves you so much. He has a wonderful plan for your life. He, he will fill that emptiness. He will fill that void, and, and he will be with you for all of eternity. Amen. That's all true. But the reason we need Jesus Christ is because we've all sinned and we can't take care of that sin problem on our own. And that sin has to be dealt with. Well, that's what the end of Romans 1 and what Romans 2 got into, is how is this sin problem going to be dealt with? The true gospel is Jesus loves you. The true gospel is Jesus does fill that void in your heart. The true gospel is Jesus did open up the door for you to have eternity in heaven. The true gospel is also that sin has to be dealt with. Jesus did not die on the cross for us to have a better day. He died on the cross to take away the penalty of sin. And that's what the rest of Romans chapter 2 deals with. And that's what we did last week. Well, now, here in Romans chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 12. Paul, once again, and hate to keep using this word, builds on this very logical argument, if you will, that there is a gospel message. It's revealed in creation. Creation has been maligned through sin. So now we have to look at how the sin problem is taken care of. And what you see here in Romans chapter 2 is Paul is speaking to the Jews, but it applies to us today because what happened was the Jews said, well, we don't have to worry about the sin thing. We're Jews. We're part of Abraham. We got the genealogy. We got the name. We're in. We're set. 
Paul says, no, it's not your name that matters. It's not what you know that matters. It's who you know that matters. Romans chapter 2, verse 12. For as many have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although they're not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also being witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now some of you may be saying, I have no idea what you just read. It's kind of interesting because Paul is a pretty smart cookie. In fact, Peter in Peter's Gospels actually talks about how tough it is to understand Paul's Gospels. Isn't that always interesting? Peter said Paul's tough to sometimes figure out. Let's break this down. Let's keep it simple here. What Paul is saying is this, very simply put in verse 12. If you have the law, you know you've broken the law because you've sinned. It's pretty easy to say. The law says don't steal. I stole. I sinned. Pretty simple, straightforward stuff. But he's also saying in verse 12, even if you don't have the law, you're still sinners. Well, that's not really fair. You can't get upset at me for a law that I broke that I didn't even know the law existed. That, that's not fair. You know, we just went to a pastor's conference uh, last week, and there were these signs on the way. And these signs on the way started talking about how uh, some of these roads are going to be changed, the speed limits are going to be changed, and some of the stop signs are going to be changed. It's like, this is going to take effect in 30 days. They were giving you due notice that when the law changes, you know it happens. So therefore, you just don't wake up one day on a Monday, and the law has changed, and you don't know. They gave due notice of that. Some of us may say, well, this isn't fair. How am I supposed to know I'm a sinner if you haven't told me what the rules are? But look at the argument here. Jump down to verse 15. They show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. Paul says the Holy Spirit speaks to you and lets you know right from wrong. So even though you may not have the written law right in front of you, you still know right from wrong. We know this from a very early age, what's right and wrong. We know when we break the law when we're little. You know, we got four boys at home. And one of the rules is, we've joked about this out here before, if I ever see one of the boys go behind the couch... They're usually doing something wrong. There's no reason to be behind the couch unless you're trying to hide something from me. The other day, Kenan put something in his mouth, went and ran behind the couch. Okay, I'm not smart, but I'm not dumb. I know he was doing something. And so therefore, he was trying to hide because he knew what he was doing was wrong. Now, he's three, a little over three. He has knowledge of that. But take Layden, our littlest one. Dawn has started bathroom training with Layden recently. And so every time he goes, he gets the little Reese's Pieces candies. Well, he knows where they're at. They're in the one drawer in the kitchen. And so the other day, we heard rustling around in the kitchen, and it was Layden in there, and that's never good for Layden to be in there. So we said, Layden, come in here. Layden didn't come in. So went in there, and Layden has his back towards me. The drawer's open where the candy was. He has his back towards me, and he's got his head right in a corner. Okay, that's not good. He knows to hide. Layden, turn around. Layden did not turn around. Layden, turn around. He turns around. His mouth is full of Reese's Pieces, and there's this chocolate drool just coming down his face. He doesn't know the law, but he knew what he was doing was wrong. His conscience told him that. See, this is what happens here. The Bible says, if you're taking notes, write this reference down. John 16, 8. John 16, 8. says, the Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit speaks to us and knows what's right and what's wrong. We know. How many times have I told you, if someone comes into my office and says, Pastor, I don't know what I should do. What's my first follow-up question? What do you think you should do? Nine times out of ten, they already know what they should do. The Spirit has already spoken to them. They know. And this is what Paul is trying to say here. Verse 12, we're all sinners. Either sinned with the law or you've sinned without the law. Hey, that's not fair. I didn't know the rules. Hey, verse 15, you have a conscience. The Spirit speaks to your heart, and that Spirit says what you did was wrong, and you know you were wrong. That's the word conviction. That's what God uses to bring us to Him. We know we're wrong. So that's how that works, which then takes us then 
to verse 13. Because now Paul says, wait a second. I'm just not looking for people to hear. I'm looking for people to do. There's a lot of people that hear. Lots of people that hear. Turn, if you will, to James chapter 1. Churches all over the country today, all over the world, here in Henry County, are going to be full of people hearing the law, hearing the truth. But how many are going to leave that church doing what they're supposed to do? We're all good at hearing. We're all good at listening. And some of you may even underline a verse. You may take a couple notes. But are you going to walk out of this building doing what God wants us to do? James chapter 1. Because it's inevitable. I run into people that are going through a difficult time as you're going to James 1. And they always come up and say, James, I know what I should be doing. What am I supposed to say to that? I know what I should be doing. I never want to sound mean. But I usually say, well, then why aren't you doing it? James 1, let's talk about hearing and doing. Look at verse 21 of James 1. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The word, that's what we're doing right now is we're giving you the word. We're giving you straightforward, verse by verse, God's teaching of the Bible. So what does that do? Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. How many times do we do that in a teaching? Oh, good point. Oh, I like that. Underline. Oh, I'm going I'm to make some note of that. That's a good verse. We get up, shake hands, leave. What was the message about? I don't know. I think we were in Corinthians this morning. You know, and this is what happens. We hear, but we don't do. And this is where Paul is writing to his audience in the book of Romans. He goes, you guys not only need to hear, but you also need to do. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And do you know Christ? I know you know about him, he says, but do you really know him? Do you really know him? And even if you don't have the written rules, back to Romans 2, verse 14, you still know the truth because the Spirit speaks that truth to your heart. So now with this understanding, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew. And rest on the law and make your boast in God. Know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. He says, you guys are Jews. You know all this. You're of the seed of Abraham. The law was given to you. You have that title, Jew. And not even having the title Jew, you have the background. Look at verse 19. You're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. You know it. You're even doing things. But Paul's argument here in a little bit is going to be, but are you really living it? See, here's the thing. Is we wouldn't use the word today, Jew, verse 17. Indeed, you're called a Jew. We would use other words. Now, what words would we use? Well, indeed, you are called fill in the blank. Indeed, you are called Baptist. Indeed, you are called non-denominational. Indeed, you are called Lutheran. Indeed, you are called Catholic. Indeed, you are called Methodist. It's not the point of trying to pick on a denomination or a non-denomination. The point is, you have a title. Great. That's just a title. That doesn't mean anything. Well, they have a title of being a Jew. We have a title of something else. But look at their background. They're, they're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, and instructor of the foolish. Well, we do the same thing today, don't we? I'm doing things. I teach Sunday school. I must be in. Well, I, I, I've done this. I, I've, I've gone through whatever. I, I've gone through the baptism. I, I've, I've gone through the, the confirmation. I've gone through this. Once again, there's nothing wrong with those things those things may serve a purpose and are good but if that's what the person is trusting in for salvation they're mistaken because this is what paul is saying you being a jew that doesn't get you in your works that you do verses 18 19 and 20 that doesn't get you in if you're taking notes write this passage down isaiah 64 6 isaiah 64 6 all of our works are like filthy rags whatever we do is still not good enough to get us in 
This is just Christianity 101. If we could earn our way to heaven, as long as we did more good than bad, I'm going to help a few old ladies across the street today just to get my notch up a few. No. As we talked about last week, we're sinners. And we joked last week that we probably should have had a warning in the uh, slideshow there that, you know, warning hard hat area or put on your steel toe shoes. These messages are tough. And I like to joke sometimes that, you know, I'd, I'd like to skip the rest of Romans 2, a good chunk of Romans 3. Ah, and let's get to Romans 4, faith. But to fully understand faith and salvation, you have to understand sin. That's not a really popular message. I mean, obviously, if you want the church to grow numerically, don't mention sin. <laughs> That's just simple. But if you don't mention sin, you're not giving the full gospel of Jesus Christ. You have to present it. And right here, Paul is saying in verses 17 through 20, he goes, I don't care what your title is. I don't care what you've done. Are you saved? Or very simply put, are you living it? Look at verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemy among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. Let's just be straightforward. The majority of people in America were really spiritual hypocrites. I'm the biggest hypocrite there is. Because I read these passages and I thought, Lord, do I really have to teach on these? Would anybody notice if I skip verses 21 through 24? Let's look at 21. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? It's like, oh, man. I'm telling you now, people come up to me after church and say, oh, boy, that message is really convicting. I'm telling you, the most convicted person on Sunday is me. Because I know I sin. I know I'm not perfect. And I look at this and I see verses 21 through 24 and it's like, yeah, Lord, I not only want to teach it, I not only want to preach it, but by golly, Lord, I want to live it. I mean, isn't that what the world needs? It's more Christians that are really living for Christ. Not just going to church, not just having a title, not just having a name, but people that are really serious about the relationship with Jesus to say, I want to see my unsaved friends and loved ones saved. I want to see my co-workers who don't know Christ saved. That's what we need. We don't need more religion. I, I just heard a... Um, uh, stat the other day on the radio, and it was uh, one of the, uh, the Barna uh, stats where they said now 80% of Americans call themselves Christians. 80%. By golly, folks, if there's 80% of Americans that are Christians, something's not clicking here. It's not clicking. Why? Because of verses 21 through 24. We know it. We know what to say. The truth of the matter is we are not living it the way we should. This is not here to step on your toes. It's not here to be hellfire and brimstone. This is just straightforward. A lot of times we're not living it the way we should. We're going through Revelation on Wednesday nights, and we're up to the seal judgments now. But before we got to them, we were doing the churches, the seven churches in Revelation. In Revelation 3, verse 1, the church of Sardis. God told the church at Sardis, you have a name, but you're dead. And isn't that true today? There's a lot of people that have a name, but they're spiritually dead. Oh, where do you go to church? Oh, I go so-and-so. Well, I have a name. I'm alive. I'm part of that but dead. Once again, when I use this example, I'm not trying to say this example of any particular denomination, because you see it with every denomination, even with the non-denominationals. But there was years ago, I was talking to a guy, and he happened to be um, Catholic. And, I, and I, we were talking about the Lord and talking about Christianity, and I said, sorry, are you a Christian? And I remember he said, well, he goes, I don't know if I'm a Christian, but I'm a Catholic. And, and he said, I said, oh, I said, are you, are you saved? He goes, well, I don't know if I'm saved, but he goes, but I've uh, been baptized, and, I, and I've gone through catechism, and I've done First Communion. And I sat there and I said, listen, I said, have you ever had that moment of salvation, of understanding, not, not what you've done, but have you ever had that moment where you understand Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? Not, not what you've done, not the title, not the name. And see, and that's what the church at Sardis had. They had a name. They thought they were alive, but they were really dead. And you see that a lot in, in churches that have a name, 
the church is spiritually dead or dying. You see that a lot in people that have a name. Well, that's so-and-so. They, they do this and that. They're really spiritually dead. And that's what Paul is talking here to, is those people that have a name, but they're dead. Turn, if you will, to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 29. Great passage here about this that we want to build on this a little bit. Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29. Here through the prophet Isaiah, God is speaking to the nation of Israel. Because they had the knowledge, they had the name, they didn't have any fruit. Isaiah 29, and let's go ahead here in verse 13. Isaiah 29, verse 13. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Do you see what was going on here? Verse 14. The Jews had the wisdom. They had the law. They had the knowledge of God. But yet, verse 14, that wisdom was not equal to really knowing God. Hence, verse 13, they were saying things and honoring the Lord with their lips and with their mouths, but their hearts were not His. This is what happens today to a lot of us. We say the right things. We act the right way morally but our hearts are not right with Christ. And God says, I don't care so much about your lips or your mouth, but what's going on in here? Is your heart right? One of the things that we try to do at home and we try to really instill into the boys is this concept of, uh, of being a cheerful giver. Because I know none of you here do this because obviously you're all perfect, but the truth of the matter is how many of us do the right thing, but we don't do it with the right heart or attitude? We do it begrudgingly. How many of you this morning are here because spouse said we're going, mom said we're going, dad said we're going, or I haven't been there in a while and I don't want James to contact me. So it's easier just to come. I'll sit for an hour and a half, but I'll leave before the final song so that way I can beat the traffic. We do the right things, but our heart's not there. Well, Old Testament, the Jews were doing the right thing. They did their little sacrifices. They did their Day of Atonement, their Yom Kippur. They did everything they were supposed to do, but their hearts weren't in line with God. Same thing happens today. I do the right thing. I read my Our Daily Bread in the morning. I make sure I pray before I eat. I'll even serve once or twice back in the children's ministry. I will do the right thing. But is your heart right with the Lord? That's all that matters. Now, I always find it fascinating in the Bible when God takes a passage out of the Old Testament and he quotes it in the New Testament. Because obviously it's important enough that it's in the Bible, but for then it to be quoted again in the New Testament, it shows it carries a lot more weight. Turn, if you will, to Matthew 15. And even to be quoted in the New Testament, then to be quoted by Jesus. So let's go to Matthew 15 and see how the, this passage lines up now in the New Testament. Because here in Matthew 15, Jesus quotes this same verse. So if Jesus himself thought it was a big enough deal to quote this verse again, let's see what he has to say about this now in Matthew 15. Matthew 15, verse 1. It says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? But they did not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now stop there for a second. It's not that the disciples or apostles were these unclean, filthy people. According to Jewish tradition, this was not in the law. This was their own personal tradition. Your hands had to be washed a certain way. They had to be washed this way. If you do not wash your hands this way, it does not count. And I don't remember all the details. I studied this out one time, and it was one of those things that I forgot because 
I've, I've joked about this before. My wife requires us all in the Irvin house to wash hands a certain way. She's a little bit of a germaphobe, and if you don't know how it goes, this is how it has to work, just so everybody knows. Your hands are dirty, so first you turn the water on, and you get your paper out first, and you put your soap on your hands. So therefore, you wash your hands with your soap, and then you rinse off your hands on the water. You take the paper, dry your hands. That paper now you use to shut the water off. Then you also have to use that paper to go open up the door because there's probably somebody before you that did not wash their hands, and so that door is dirty, so you have to use that paper to walk, open the door, and then you're finally allowed to leave the bathroom after an hour. I mean, that's how it kind of goes. I know what it's like to live with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I know. So their hands had to be washed a certain way. And, and the way that the hands ended up, this is all I remember, is the hands ended up like this, almost like surgeon hands, so the water would drain down. If your hands ended up like this, the water goes back over your hands. So anyway, they weren't washing their hands right. So, verse 3, he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Jesus is saying, come on, guys, highly paraphrased. This isn't in the Bible. This is your tradition. This is your idea. You're not going to find this from Genesis to Revelation. Verse 4, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you who say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift of God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God no effect by your tradition. Boy, isn't this what happens today? The traditions of man overrule Scripture. Verse 7, Hypocrites! You don't hear that word much in church. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, Here's our verse. These people draw near me to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandment of men. Isn't it interesting? This is something in the Bible called a dual prophecy, a dual fulfillment. Back in Isaiah 29, the prophecy was fulfilled by speaking to the Jews directly. But also Jesus says, hey, this prophecy is also for the Pharisees and the Sadducees during his time. So hence dual fulfillment. It fulfills two different prophecies there. Jesus says these people had the knowledge, they had the wisdom, they had the right words, they had even the right moral actions, but their heart was not right with Christ. That's what the problem was. This is what Paul is saying here in Romans 2. He goes, you got the name. You're a Jew. You got the background. Doesn't mean anything. Same thing today. You got the name, whatever name you want to have. Doesn't mean anything. Maybe even got some moral attitude. Doesn't mean anything. Is your heart right with Christ? Some of you may be saying, but, but wait, I have fill in blank. I have done this and this and this. I've, I, I, I've done the baptism. I've done the teaching. I, I, I've done the, 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 the confirmation thing. I've done all these things. Doesn't this count for something? Once again, those things may have spiritual good on their own accord, and those things may serve a purpose, but those things aren't salvation. Because what the Jews are going to say here in verse 25 is, we have circumcision. We're in. Verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men but from God. See, the Jews said, wait a second, you can't get on us. We have the circumcision. We are a seed of Abraham. We are in. We're part of the group. Paul says that act in the flesh means nothing if your heart is not right with Christ. It means absolutely nothing. The only thing that matters is a repentant heart and a heart for Jesus. That's all that matters. What happens today is we wouldn't say the circumcision. 
But we would fill in the blank with whatever religious thing we want to say. Look what I've done. I'm okay. I'm in. No. It's your heart. It's your actions. That's what matters there. And those actions are not actions to salvation. Those actions are actions of a changed heart for the Lord, which shows that things have changed. Because what really matters is God says, I want your heart. Look at verse 29. For he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. See, circumcision in the Old Testament represented the cutting away the cutting away of the flesh, the things that were, were destructive, the things that were sinful and bad. So it was a visible representation of saying, I am letting go of my old life, I'm letting go of my past, I'm now a new creation in the Lord. So what mattered most was verse 29 was the inward. The inward thing is what matters most. See, because verse 28, we have a lot of outward things we do. But God says, I, I'm wondering where your heart's at. Where's your heart at on this? That's what Paul was asking the nation of Israel. Well, the same thing has asked us today. Where's our heart at? You know, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what I've done. What matters is, where is the heart at when it comes to the Lord? Because in fact, if you're taking notes, write this passage down. Ezekiel 44, verse 7. Ezekiel 44, verse 7 talks about circumcision of the heart. Now, that's not New Testament. That's Old Testament. God was even saying in the Old Testament is, I want your heart. I want who you are. I don't want some religious action. I want your heart. Remember in Psalm 51, one of my favorite psalms in the Bible, this is the psalm that David wrote after he committed the affair with Bathsheba. And if you remember the story, David saw Bathsheba, David wanted Bathsheba, Bathsheba came over, they had an affair, and so now found out Bathsheba was pregnant, so David had to find out some way to hide this thing. So he, long story short, Bathsheba was married to a guy by the name of Uriah. So David has Uriah killed in battle. So everything's good now. Now Bathsheba can come and get married to David, everything looks good. And so Uriah is dead, so no one's going to think anything. This goes on for a year. David was unrepentant about this for over a year. Finally, Nathan the prophet comes in, and he does this great setup story. Great setup story. Long story short, David realizes, I'm in sin, I'm wrong. Ask for forgiveness. Well, Psalm 51 was written about this from David's perspective, and David says something in Psalm 51 is absolutely fascinating. He goes, he goes for you do not want sacrifices and offerings. Now think about that. He's saying God did not want the sacrifices and offerings for sin. You don't want more animals killed. David was saying, "Is you don't want the animals killed, you want my heart. See, that's almost heresy for a Jew to say. Because if you go study Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God wants those animals. That's how sin was covered up. For David to say, you don't want the animals, the offerings, the sacrifices, you just want my heart, it shows that David really got it. How many times do we do that today? Well, my heart's not in it, but I'm just going to do it. God says, I want your heart. I want the cheerful giver. I want your life committed to me. We can all, for all of our lives, live a morally good standard life, serve here, do this, do that, and still when it gets down to the end, say, Lord, I never gave you my heart. Remember in Matthew chapter 7, they came up to Jesus and, and they said, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do all types of miracles in your names? And what did Jesus say? Away from me, I never knew you. Wait a second. That's a scary verse. That's a scary verse because, because Jesus is saying you can do all the right things, but if you have not really made a commitment to him in your heart, it doesn't count. Yeah, that's what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus wants your heart. The actions will come once your heart is given to the Lord. And that's what matters most. Look at Lot. If you just have the Old Testament and you were making a list of who's in, who's out, Lot did not make the cut. I mean, come on, Lot. Lot? Ended up living in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like, let's go have a tent on the Vegas Strip right there. And not even live in Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible says he became one of the leaders in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, and this is Lot. This is Lot. The angels come to Lot to get him out of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And, and all the men of, of Sodom and Gomorrah are just full of sexual perversion come and say, send out those men, send out, the, they didn't know they were angels, but send out those men so that we may know them carnally, as the Bible says. What was Lot's great response to that? Do you remember? Well, I won't send the men out, but you can have my daughters. Come on, Lot. And then Lot didn't really want to go. The angels had to take him. And then once Lot gets done and he finally gets out of Sodom and Gomorrah, he gets drunk, has an incestual relationship with his daughters, and that's where the children of Moab come. So if you're just looking at the Old Testament, you say, okay, no doubt about it, Lot is out. Lot never really called on as a kid's name, did it? Name my kid Lot. No. You go to Hebrews, what does it say? Righteous Lot, whose soul was in torment in Sodom and Gomorrah. The New Testament reveals Lot was saved, was righteous, and even though he was living this life that was not morally up to standard, his heart was breaking over this because his heart was with the Lord. Now that's a whole other teaching for another day. But the point is, sometimes we look at these things and say, oh, that person's in because look at all the stuff they're doing. Only God knows the heart. I tell you right now, I firmly believe when you get up to heaven, there's going to be shocking probably some of the people that made it. Some of you may be those people too because I don't have a lot of faith in some of you, but you know, some of you may, you may get in there. You may not have much faith in me. I don't know, but that's okay. Because it's grace. Oh my goodness, it's grace. Grace and mercy. So let's put this all together. So if, if the name doesn't matter of the Jew, if what we're doing doesn't earn us salvation, if the circumcision doesn't matter, verse 3, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 3, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? That's a valid question. So what's the point? I mean, what's the point of all this then? If none of this stuff matters, what's the point? Verse 2. Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. See, Paul says it does matter because as a Jew, speaking to the Jews, he goes, you guys got a head start. You had the law, you had the circumcision, you had the heritage, you had the understanding of God, so therefore you understand more. So you have a head start. The, the example I give is this. Imagine you're going to race somebody in a 100-yard dash. So you're lined up and you're going to race to the finish line, but they come up to you and say, hey, James, you get to start 50 yards up. Now, I still have to get to the finish line, I still have to cross the finish line. I get a head start of 50 yards. Same thing spiritually. Some of you were born and raised in a Christian home. Wonderful testimony. I mean, seriously, what a wonderful testimony to be born and raised in a Christian home. You had a spiritual head start. Now, you weren't saved at that. You know what I mean? You still had to come to the knowledge of Jesus on your own. But you were raised by hopefully godly parents that took you to church, instilled into you the Bible, and encouraged you in your walk. You still had to get to the finish line of Jesus but you had a head start. Now, some of you were not raised in a Christian home. You came from the most dysfunctional of all dysfunctional homes. You had a little bit longer race to get to the finish line, but you know what? Same finish line awaits you of Christ. That's the advantage that Paul says in verse 2. They were Jews. They had the understanding. And so you know what? Some of us are raised in that Christian home. We got that head start in our walk in relationship with Jesus. What a blessing that is. What a blessing that is. So, putting this all together, what... Verse 2 is our head start. What, what's our advantage that we get? I mean, I'm not a Jew. What advantage do we get? Well, you don't have to turn. There's just a simple little verse. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 says this. Today is the day of salvation. Isn't that our advantage? We can have Jesus anytime we want. You know, uh, Yom Kippur was just, uh, I think, about a week, week and a half ago. If you're not familiar with the Day of Atonement, Old Testament, one day out of the year. One day out of the year, one man, high priest, got to have a relationship with God. One day out of the year, one man representing the entire nation of Israel got to go in and have a relationship with God. That was what Day of Atonement is. Who would go into the Holy of Holies and put some blood there on the altar. That was their relationship with the Lord. You and I today, wow, Holy Spirit speaks to us. When you get born again and saved, the Holy Spirit lives inside of your heart. 
Hebrews 4.16 says you can boldly go to the throne of grace. Can you imagine waiting all year to have one day with God? You can go home right now and pray. You can pray right now. You can worship him right now. You can study his word right now. That's the advantage we have is today is the day of salvation. And why do we need that salvation? Jump ahead to verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? I mean, we had the head start. Are we better? No, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin. That was the end of Romans 1 and Romans 2. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here's the truth of the matter. None of us are in by what we've done. None. Now, I, I'm not a student of, of Greek, but I'm pretty sure when it says in verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understand. There is none who seeks after God. I think none means none. None. And, and the thing is, if we're still here, sitting here today thinking, okay, yeah, I hear it, I get it, but, but what? I, I, yeah, I get it, but what? There's none. There's nothing you can do other than apart from Jesus Christ. And that's one of the things I love about Christianity. I had a chance to witness to somebody this week, and um, I asked them, I said, are you a Christian? And, and they said, no, no, I don't think so. And um, I think that, I'm trying to remember how they worded it, but something came up of, I don't know why I would be or something like that. So I sat there, and I said, well, you know what? There's a heaven and there's a hell. And Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. And I thought as I'm telling this, this, how simple is that? One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, the simplicity of Christ. How simple is that? We, we have done three, four weeks here in Romans 1, 2, and 3 to get to the point of saying what? We're all sinners. Only by Jesus can we have salvation in heaven. That's what it comes down to. You can't do it on your own. No matter how much good you do, you can't do it on your own. We're all sinners, and Jesus is the only one that bridges the gap to heaven. That's the day of salvation. And that's what I want to end with today. There's two things. Number one, maybe you've never had the day of salvation. Well, today is the day of salvation. Maybe it finally clicked with you today. I'm trusting and relying on what I've done rather than trusting and relying on Christ. That's not going to get you in. We just made that point abundantly clear. It's not what we do. It's who we know. And do you know Jesus? Do you trust that he died on the cross for your sins? Do you trust that it's only through him? You, you owe this debt of sin that you can't pay. No matter how much money you got in your wallet, you can't pay. It only can be paid by Christ on the cross. Maybe you do know him, but yet you look at Romans 3 and you see the whole uh, verses. Oh, let's see here, verse 12. It says, There's no one who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues, they have practiced evil. The poison of asp is under their lips. Mouth is full of cursing. Feet swift to shed blood. Maybe you say, that's me. I know the truth. I know Christ, but you know what? My life is not where it's supposed to be. My mouth is not where it's supposed to be. My feet are not where they're supposed to be. Destruction is where I'm at. I'm not living the life that I'm supposed to be. The Bible uses the term backslidden. Because you know where you're supposed to be. You know what you're supposed to be doing, but yet you're not doing it. And I'm telling you right now, one of the most dangerous places to be in life is to know where God wants you, to know that you're not doing what he, you're supposed to be doing, to then not care. That's a dangerous place, people. I don't say this to scare you. I don't say this, once again, as hellfire and brimstone. I say this out of love to say, I want you to experience everything that Christ has for you. And I want you to have the full joy and peace that he gives. And I know that full joy and peace comes from what? A life right in him. doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're not going to sin. But what it means is you have a Savior. And when your life, you look at this and you say, my lips, my tongue, my mouth, my cursing, my feet are all not where they're supposed to be. Today's the day to come and say, I want to pray about this. I want things to be made right. I want to recommit to where I'm supposed to be. So what I'm going to do here is this. As, as Marv comes up to do the final song, I'm going to be sitting right over here. 
And if anybody wants to come up and pray, um, pray with me while Marv's doing the final song. I want them to feel free to come up and do that. Um, is Jonathan in here? No. Is Renee in here? No. Great. I'll be flying solo up here. No, I'll be up here uh, praying. And Marv, you can come up and do the final song. So I, I will not be in the back to uh, shake your hands when you're um, 